0: Hi, Manoush. My name's Jeff.
1: I'm a black
0: man, a Chicago native, and the father of two young boys. I want them to gain some insight into how to navigate the digital world. However, after creating an email account for our first son, someone recently tried to hack into that account.
1: I like sharing where I am with my friends. I like posting on Instagram. The problem is I'm also an abuse survivor. There was a moment last year when I had an online wedding registry and an RSVP list and my abuser found it and RSVP to my wedding. I use Facebook all the time, specifically Facebook Messenger. I have downloaded the app and used it and then deleted it and gotten totally rid of it and then downloaded it again and then deleted it again, mostly because I have a level of unease about how much data I am giving Facebook for free. So many stories from you listeners about how you love the convenience of living online, but you don't like what little control you have over where your personal information goes or who can see it. And you told us you feel like you don't have much of a choice, like Laura from Hoboken, New Jersey. I am a stay-at-home mom getting ready to re-enter the workforce. And now I need to make sure I'm searchable and share a lot of information about myself because it's vital to getting a new job. And I'm feeling really conflicted between the two things that are really important to me. One being privacy and the other about being, I guess, perceived as relevant. Or Emily from Toronto. I'd always just kind of grown up with this separation of like the real world and then the internet world where people can just know whatever they want and you know, whatever, that's my internet life. But no, actually, it's super invasive. Just because it's online doesn't mean that it's actually different. It's still your life. Well, everybody, we have a plan plan to take back your online life and some control over your digital information. Welcome to this special episode of Note to Self. I'm Anush Zomorodi, and today we are launching our latest interactive project with you. We call it the Privacy Paradox. A week of daily challenges to help you understand where your information goes, weigh the trade-offs, and then make digital decisions that you can live with. Because somewhere along the way, we struck a bargain. And we didn't even realize it. We'd started trading free apps and services for our personal information. And the government decided in order to keep us safe, it needed all that information too. But as we've moved into a future where our every click, search, and like is tracked and quantified, we've begun to wonder all that data compiled somewhere without our say how is it being used to know and nudge and maybe influence us and what if we decide we're not okay with algorithms affecting every aspect of our existence we don't want to opt out or go off the grid but is there a better way a way to put us the people back at the center of the web that's what I wanted to know And this project is about what we can do together. Once upon a time, privacy meant something very simple. Leave me alone. But the meaning of privacy began to change as we stopped dialing up and started staying connected, sharing and doing our business online all day long. As Pew Research puts it, in the 21st century, we think of privacy less as solitude And more is the right to control our identity and our information. And Pew finds that 74% of Americans agree that that right is very important. Thousands of you took our note-to-self privacy survey last month, and over 70% of you told us that the information you most want to protect are your bank details, your social security numbers, and your credit card history. Which makes sense. We all want our financial details to be secure, I would also add that we all want our nation's infrastructure, our roads, electric grids, train tracks, we want them to be safe too. But in our survey, thousands of you also mentioned something else you were concerned about. That creepy feeling you get online when ads are just a little too on the nose, or when voice control keeps popping up and won't turn off on your new iPhone. You can't quite put your finger or your cursor on it But all these things bother you. And if we care so much about protecting our information and we feel uneasy about it, why do we keep giving it away? Researchers call this question the privacy paradox.
0: We are all, or most of us, interested in privacy.
1: Professor Alessandro Acquisti studies the behavioral economics of privacy at Carnegie Mellon University. He is also, as you just heard, Italian. Alessandro says our actions rarely echo our words when it comes to privacy.
0: We want more privacy. We want more control over personal information. In actions, we seem to be quite confident and happy with revealing even sensitive information with strangers online.
1: So we talk the talk, but we don't walk it. But why? Because, researchers say, we suffer from immediate gratification bias and hyperbolic discounting. Basically, fancy words for impulse posting.
0: When you reveal a person's information, you upload a funny photo on Facebook, you get usually an immediate benefit.
1: I've observed this in myself and, you know, just anecdotally talking to people. This this moment, right, where you're like, oh, this new app looks super cool. Okay, I'm going to sign up for it. Oh, they want me to accept all these terms of services. I'm not going to read them all. I'm a terrible person. I'm giving away my identity and information, but I... I really want to use this app and it's so easy. Just click accept. Okay, done. Okay, forget it. Let's not think about that anymore. It's like this this split second of ickiness. And then the convenience just always seems to outweigh the icky feeling.
0: Exactly. We tend to gratify our current self and we push cost on our future self.
1: Instagram likes. Click. download a game to play in the long airport security line. Who cares about privacy when the instant gratification of the internet is so instantly satisfying? Sure, there are those nightmare stories, but what are the odds it's going to happen to you? As Alessandro says, your future self will probably be fine. The worst that will likely happen is you feel kind of violated by all the companies maybe the government, tracking you along with everyone else. But we can live with that icky feeling. Or can't we? Melissa in Brooklyn says the icky feeling is haunting her. I think about privacy issues probably 80% of the days that I use Facebook. So the lack of privacy is gnawing at us. And sometimes the information we give away does come and bite us on the butt. In our survey, many of you sent us stories of personal privacy lost. One man said his religious wife filed for divorce after Facebook changed its settings and revealed to her that he belonged to an atheist Bible study group. Another listener told me she did not appreciate being shown fertility ads for months after having surgery to remove her ovaries. So for someone who just lost their ovary, At a very young age to a very rare tumor, that was really harrowing and also just, frankly, quite upsetting. Richard in San Diego is in the military. His wife, now ex, tried to prove he had cheated on her by doing research online and taking what she found to his commanding officer.
0: She hacked my social media accounts and my email account and compiled all the information she thought was evidence and sent a package to my CO of the command I was at. The CO called me into his office and interrogated me for three hours. I didn't get in trouble at all, and what I did get was a better awareness of my
2: privacy.
1: We even heard from a U.S. congressman.
2: Hi, it's Rush Holt. Well, for years, I was in the U.S. Congress, and I was really creeped out by what the NSA was doing and uh, how much they were lying about it. Listeners
1: reported seeing their own emails in WikiLeaks dumps and being followed by stalkers. The list goes on. Some of us are fearful for our personal safety. Mostly, we're just fearful of public embarrassment or hassles. But when does an individual's worry turn into a systemic one? What about the worst-case scenarios? Tracking and persecution has happened throughout history, from the Stasi in eastern Germany to today in North Korea, Iran, Sudan— And then there's the homegrown variety, mobs on Twitter destroying lives with Gamergate, and then that weird Comet pizza story.
2: File this under what happens when fake news stories use the names of real people and places, but not real facts.
1: States and angry individuals punishing people for their sexual orientation or political views that they may or may not have explicitly shared online. Russian hackers, anyone? when we come back is having ourselves and our information laid out for governments and advertisers to graze on just a fact of digital life what it's going to take to resolve the privacy paradox and how it starts with you don't go away the privacy paradox. That is the name of Note to Self's latest interactive project and we are launching it right here right now. I'm Anoush Samarodi. So the paradox is that we care about privacy. We care a lot. But we don't do anything about it. Or really, we don't feel like there's anything we can do about it. It's just part of living in the digital age, right? How did we even get here? Take the terms of service. Day in, day out, we click Agree. When did signing something that takes away your right to your own information become so normal? In our Note to Self privacy survey, we asked thousands of you, how do you feel when a company asks you to agree to its terms of service? More than a third of you, 37%, said that you feel resigned. This is the deal we make to get convenient stuff. No choice about it. A quarter of you feel annoyed. The length of these things and the legalese is ridiculous. Another quarter feels guilty, like you should read them, but you don't. Those of you who feel guilty, good news. This project is going to let you off the hook. More later. And anyway, just 8% of you felt indifferent. There's lots of negative emotion around terms of service. Other words some of you used were angry, manipulated, bullied, How did we get here to a point where, to use the stuff that we need all day long, first we have to feel so bad? For
2: this, we turn to the retired Harvard professor at the nexus of this question. We think of the Internet as a democratizing influence, and that is true. That is absolutely true. But what's different is the kind of capitalism that is being built on top of that process. To describe this new kind of capitalism,
1: Shoshana Zuboff coined the term surveillance capitalism.
2: I'll begin with a company that I consider to be the ground zero of surveillance capitalism, which is Google. Google is to surveillance capitalism in the 21st century what General Motors was to managerial capitalism and mass production in the 20th century.
1: General Motors was the world's largest motor vehicle manufacturing company. It drove the U.S. economy for much of the 1900s. Fast forward to the turn of this century... And you can see the birth of a new kind of corporation. That's when Google perfected their algorithms to let us search for absolutely anything online. And then the founders started experimenting, experimenting with different ways to turn those algorithms into dollars. And they discovered the money wasn't in search. It was in the people doing the searching.
2: Us. What they discovered was that they can take these traces of our behavior, their digital breadcrumbs, things that nobody cares about, and they discovered that by scooping all of that up and organizing it and analyzing it, they could do something that comes very close to predicting our behavior. You know what that's like. Ads for that pair of sneakers
1: that you looked at online? Than following you around from your laptop to your phone, or the algorithm that deduces, I might be interested in hiring a divorce attorney because I googled summer vacations. And studies show divorce rates tend to spike after the summer break. And so do Google searches for divorce attorneys.
2: So here's where we veer away from the General Motors style of capitalism. What General Motors and Google have in common is that they're both pioneers. In General Motors' case, it made things that it sold to us. And it hired us to help make those things. So General Motors was dependent upon its populations as the source of employees and the source of customers. In Google's case, what it discovered was the fastest way to make money was to take our data, to translate it into predictions about us, and to sell it to somebody else who could benefit from knowing what we are going to do soon and later. We become what I call sources of surplus.
1: General Motors sells cars. Google sells us. Except now, of course, Shoshana reminds us that Google has much more than search or advertising. It offers email and maps and connected devices like the Nest thermostat. Plus, the so-called Internet of Things is coming. Connected light bulbs, refrigerators, our clothes. And as a result, it won't just be advertisers who are interested in our behavior to sell us stuff. It's insurance companies that offer us a better deal based on digital feedback from our car or medical companies who see that we get our heart rate up regularly at the gym and they can offer us a good price for life insurance. But that's good for us as consumers, isn't it? Well, not if the company has decided they don't want you as a customer because of what you look like or where you come from. Should we
2: care if they can collect and measure all our behavior? The reason that we care about this is that in this process, we have blown right by privacy. For millennia, we as a species, as the whole history of humanity, we've been – sacrificing and experimenting and fighting and winning freedoms that we associate with things like personal autonomy, like self-determination, like free will. These are the aspects of our daily lives, of our experience of self, that make it possible for us to imagine something like democracy. Our every
1: click, thought, and action quantified, analyzed, sold, and then used to nudge us to do more clicking and opining and searching so we can be monetized. Is this the system we want to live with? Are free apps enough of a trade-off? Maybe. Or maybe there need to be more checks and balances. Or an ethical agreement between tech makers and their users. Or alternative kinds of technology. Maybe we just need more time offline. I'm not sure. And this is what I want to explore with you listeners, because also this isn't just about shopping. It's also about basic human rights and dignity and democratic principles. After all, as we learned in our episode about the Fourth Amendment a couple weeks ago, The government's argument is, well, if all these companies can scoop up all this personal information, why can't we do it, too? And the government is. Go back and listen to the episode called The Bookie, the Phone Booth, and the FBI if you missed it. But this situation isn't set in stone. We can rewrite the code of online conduct. There is time for us to make changes before the drip, 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 the erosion of our privacy— just becomes normal. How it's always been done. It's just the way it is. (sighs) Deep breath. You are not crazy if you feel uneasy about the future of capitalism and democracy, along with ads for that vacation in Mexico that you were thinking about taking. But it's not like you're going to stop clicking yes tomorrow. So, what do we do about it? Ah, well, understanding the paradox is just the beginning of our privacy project. Every day, starting Monday, February 6th, you'll get a short podcast and a special newsletter that will help you resolve, try to resolve, your own privacy paradox. If you are hearing this after the week of challenges has started, don't worry, you can start anytime. But to take part, do sign up. And yes, we have a written privacy statement in plain English, and we will not share your email address. Go to privacyparadox.org. You'll also find a quiz there so you can figure out what kind of personal privacy persona you have. Yes, this is a real thing. Researchers have studied it. So of course, we turned it into a fun quiz. Find out if you are the shrugger, the believer, or the realist. I think I'm the realist. And then next week... You're going to hear from special guests like renowned cryptographer Bruce Schneier, the inventor of the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and the executive producer of The Bachelor TV Empire. You'll see how it all relates. And we've also got some really interesting activities that you are going to want to try. The goal is to help you understand more about where your information goes, to weigh the trade-offs, and make digital decisions that you can feel not bad about Maybe you can even feel good. We're also going to try and measure which challenges you find most useful so that researchers can learn from this project, just as they have from our past two projects. Because here's the thing. All this data could help solve some of the world's biggest problems. Just listen to last week's episode for some examples. But we need to figure out this privacy dilemma. And here's the good news. Next week you'll hear why our experts are optimistic.
2: I am optimistic. It's quite possible to have something where you're using data for good while at the same time doing a pretty good job of protecting individual liberty.
1: I think the election also is causing a lot of debate about whether these tech platforms need to have a little bit more of a moral compass.
2: There are solutions that will be found. I just think it's going to require a real focus on some of these big picture issues. Even though I know I have nothing to hide and nothing to fear, we need to take that view for privacy, especially now in the U.S. when we're concerned about marginal populations. Those of us with
0: privilege
2: need to step up.
0: We can have the utopia of uh Finding a cure for cancer, using big data for the common good, while protecting privacy. The challenge is how, as a society, we move into adopting the technologies that will make it possible.
2: This is not the only possible way that digital capitalism can evolve.
0: I don't want to scare anybody here, but it's pretty much on the shoulders of this generation whether we're going to get it in the right direction or not. We're working towards you being in charge, you controlling who gets access and what they do with it.
1: I wanna live on that worldwide
2: web. Let's build it. Let's all build it together.
1: I'm pumped. I hope you are too. Privacyparadox.org will be in touch. Just a reminder: the week of challenges, February 6th through the 10th. We know you're busy and that you know this matters. Drop in, check it out, spread the word. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, and Joe Plourd. Many thanks to composer Hannes Brown, producer Megan Cunane, and all the teams at WNYC helping to make this project possible. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Hop up onto your screen, making Jesus. Watch out!